0: Copy of God's Word with me to the 12th chapter of the book of Romans. Specifically, Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 21 is our text this morning. The title of the message, Overcoming Evil, Instructions and Prohibitions. I don't think I'm breaking news to any of you that we live in a culture that is hostile towards the things of Christ. And therefore, it is hostile towards the people of God, the church. We see it all around us. Two weeks ago, Tony Dungy, who is a former NFL player and head coach, who is a Christian, dared to speak at the National Right to Life rally. and Because of that, he was viciously attacked in the media as a hate monger. Demands for his firing as an NFL television commentator poured in from all quarters. All because he simply believes what the Bible has to say about life. Now, Most of us are not as high profile as Tony Dungy, but many of you in this room have experienced the sting of being mocked or marginalized and even slandered because of your Christian faith. There are some in this room that are international friends who have had to flee their homeland very literally because of religious persecution. Perhaps there was a day not that long ago that a sermon like the one I'm about to preach instructions and prohibitions relating to being persecuted for our faith would be in the realm of the hypothetical. But today's not that day. This is very real, and it's upon us. So we need to read our text. Romans twelve fourteen through 21. The Apostle Paul writes, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. May the Lord add his blessing the reading of his word. Now you might have noted that three times in those eight verses, Paul said something to the effect that Christians are not to return evil for evil. And so that is the overarching theme of this section of scripture. Don't give evil for evil. Paul knows that everything within a human being, even Christian human beings, is to strike back when struck, to to seek to land verbal haymakers when maligned, and to take matters into one's own hands when threatened. And yet we know as believers that is not the way of Christ. And after all, this section of Romans is about sanctification, isn't it? Sanctification is the process over time in which believers began to look more and more like Jesus. Jesus. And so uh, we know that sanctification calls us to be like Christ. The word Christian means Christ-like. And so in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter, who was, after all, a guy who was prone to strike back, he was not one who was prone to turn the other cheek. We remember that on the night of Jesus' arrest, when they came out to get Jesus, it was Peter that pulled out the sword and struck the servant of the high priest's ear and cut it off. And by the way, he wasn't aiming for the ear. He was aiming for the jugular. In his old age, though, he came to understand what it meant to turn the other cheek. First Peter 2.21, Peter writes, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering... He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. He remembered how Jesus told him, Peter, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. Put your sword up. Well, let's get into our outline this morning. I want to draw your attention to five points that the Apostle Paul makes in these eight verses concerning a believer's relationship to unbelievers, particularly His relationship to unbelievers who are hostile towards his faith. And it begins with how we speak to those unbelievers. Wise words. Verse 14 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now words are incredibly powerful. Words have the power to heal. They have the power to destroy. We can bless someone with our words or we can curse someone with our words. James, the brother of Jesus, had lots to say about our words particularly how we use our tongue. In James chapter 3, he described the human tongue as a wild animal which no one can domesticate. He described it as a rudder on a ship. It's a very small part, but it can turn a great vessel. He compared it to a fire. When it gets out of hand, it can burn up the world. He talked about it in terms of being a poison that when we drink, it kills. And in verse 9 of chapter 3, he says, with the tongue we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. Brother, these things ought not to be. James noticed that among the Christians in his church that on one hand when they came together on the Lord's day they hugged one another and blessed one another and prayed for one another and when they left the second they were reviled by a lost person they turned that blessing into cursing. He says, brothers, don't do that. Here's the very issue that Paul is addressing Christian, using our tongues to attack those who persecute us. And Peter's reminding us Jesus never did that. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. And so the Apostle Paul gives us commands and prohibitions a positive and a negative. First of all, he says, Bless those that persecute you. That's the positive. And I think that means to pray God's favor on them. Pray for their health and above all, pray for their salvation. And then what we're prohibited from doing is cursing them. Do not curse them, he says. And when we curse an unbeliever, we are making ourselves out to be a judge. And I found that we Christians don't make very good judges. God is the judge, isn't he? Have you ever wondered why we're prohibited from being the judge of other people? Well, if you've ever served on a jury duty, you know. It's because we humans are limited by our senses, what we can see, hear, taste, smell, and touch. Have you ever been in that room and you'll hear a very articulate lawyer lay out a case? He said, here's the facts, here's what happened. And then an equally articulate lawyer will get up and say the exact opposite. And you're left to discern who's telling the truth, if anyone. And then you pray for discernment and wisdom and then you still wonder if you've made the right decision. God's not like that. He's omniscient. He's omniscient. He knows all things, and He knows all things equally well. He knows not only what happened, but why it happened, the motive behind it. That's why it is wise as a believer to leave the judgment to God. Don't take your own revenge. Secondly, not only do we need wise words to deal with hostile unbelievers, we need empathetic emotions. Look at verse 15. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. What is empathy? Empathy is the ability to understand and share in the feelings of others. It's not just that you can see that someone is upset, they're crying, obviously, or they're happy, they're smiling. It's that you have the ability to understand the cause of that emotion and feel it with them. Jesus was an empathetic person. Shortest verse in the Bible, two words, Jesus wept. He wept alongside of his friends Mary and Martha who had lost their brother Lazarus to death. But you know, Jesus was not just empathetic when people were weeping death. Sometimes he was uh, very empathetic on what we would call mundane matters. Specifically, several times in the New Testament, the Gospels, Jesus had been teaching all day long. Remember the throngs of people would come out to hear him teach because he taught as one having authority. And several times the scripture says he was moved with compassion because these people haven't eaten all day. Sounds like your grandmother, right? What have you? When, when did you eat last? Well, Jesus was empathetic that these people were hungry. Now, um, I often apply this verse in the context in our body here to funeral services, which truthfully happen almost every week here now. Uh, when one of our members passes, you respond as a family with empathy and compassion. You, you make food. You come to the funeral. You pray. When someone has a baby, we have a baby shower and you give gifts and you help them get ready for that blessed event. So I I think we do a pretty good job around here of, on one hand, rejoicing with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. But in the context of these verses, he seems to be applying it to our enemies. Now it's not a perfect separation, but this chapter divides into three segments. The first two verses, Romans 1 and 2, speak of our relationship with God. And that relationship with God begins when we present ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable. Lord, I'm no longer my own. I've been bought with a price. I'm here. I'm reporting for duty. Do with me what you please. And then verses 3 through 13 speaks of our relationship as believers with other Christians, the context of the local church, putting their needs before our own, not thinking more highly of ourselves than we should. And then verses 14 through the end of the chapter, the section we're in this morning He's speaking of how we relate not only to non-Christians, but specifically non-Christians who hate us because of our faith. And he's saying rejoice with them when they're rejoicing and weep with them when they're weeping. Paul seems to be calling us to treat our enemies the way we treat our family. You see, our relationships with those in the culture who are hostile to us because of our faith is more than a matter of ignoring their boorish behavior or turning the other cheek when they slander us or when they strike us. It means we actively pursue their well-being through kindness and empathy. And friends, if we will be patient, we will soon find that we'll have many opportunities to put this into practice. You know why? Because your lost neighbor gets sick just like you do. That non-Christian who hates you at work because of your faith one day will lose one of their parents, like many of you have, and sometimes those lost people get promotions, and sometimes they have wonderful things happen to them. You know what you should do? Rejoice with those who are rejoicing and weep with those who are weeping. We need to be empathetic with our emotions. Thirdly, Paul says in verse sixteen, we should have an egoless estimation of ourselves. Look at verse 16. He says, be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Here again is the pattern, a command followed by a prohibition. Do this, avoid that. Be of the same mind towards one another. What does that mean? It means be humble. It means don't view yourself as higher or better than a lost person. Don't be arrogant. Don't look down your your nose at your lost co-worker. Of course, he's speaking of humility. And and how do we remain humble when we're around people that hate us? Well, we are to remember that the only difference, the fundamental difference, I should say, between a believer and an unbeliever is that an unbeliever is a sinner, period, and a believer is is, is a sinner, comma, saved by grace. That's the difference. We are sinners saved by the grace of God. And that will enable us to view them not as obstacles to our fulfillment and happiness, but potential trophies of God's grace. That's how Jesus dealt with people, as potential trophies of grace. That's why he associated with the lowly. And he did. The Gospels are full of anecdotes of Jesus associating with people others would not, particularly religious people. In fact, one of the accusations that the Pharisees often leveled against Jesus is that he eats with sinners and tax collectors. Jesus never denied that. He simply said the well need not a physician. Now he wasn't saying that the Pharisees didn't need spiritual doctors. What he was saying is until they recognize their need, they can't ever be saved. See, those people that Jesus was hanging out with by his very presence recognized they were in the presence of someone very different than them. They were attracted to that. Jesus met with the poor. He calls us to visit the prisoner, the helpless. And in our context here, um, we have to find out who those people are. You say, well, we live in Keller, Texas. There are no poor people here. Yes, there are. They're all around us. You just have to open your eyes to that. And one of the things I've prayed for is that in 2023, the Lord Jesus would open our eyes to the poor right around us, that we may visit them and welcome them into our fellowship and share the gospel with them. There are prisoners here. We have a jail here in Keller, Texas, and there's usually somebody in it. Some of you have prison ministries, and may the Lord bless you, Jesus said that when I was in jail, you visited me. And he said, they'll say, when were you in jail and we visited you? He says, even when you did it to the least of these. And I think if there anyone in our culture is the least of these, it's those who are bed bound in nursing homes. There was a day when we had 13 nursing homes within five miles of our church that we were doing ministry in. And COVID has curtailed much of that. But I'm praying that this year, the they'd open back up because those people need encouragement. Those people need to know that Jesus loves them. But it's not just those outside of the church we should treat that way. It begins in the house of the Lord. Again, James, the brother of Jesus, not only warned us about how we use our tongue, but how we use our ego. And he told the hypothetical story of a rich man walked into a service like this and was ushered to the best seat in the house And when he got there someone was already occupying in a person of lower economic status and they were told get up so this rich person can sit here and you sit in the floor. And he said again brothers these things ought not to be because the most level ground on planet earth is at the cross. We are the same in the eyes of God and the church then is no place for prejudice of any kind. Fourthly the way we are to deal with the hostile world is that we are to be meek-mannered. Verse 17, he says, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Now, we are about halfway through a study on the Beatitudes in this room on Wednesday evenings. I invite you to come at 6 o'clock. Last time we were together, we studied Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, which says, Blessed are the meek, or the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. I was reminded in my study that Jesus was actually quoting from the 37th Psalm there. And I went back and read again the 37th Psalm and it gave us the characteristics of a truly meek person. Here's four of them. A truly meek person trusts in the Lord and never trusts themselves. A truly meek person commits their way to the Lord. A truly meek person delights in the Lord and he spends time in fellowships with the Lord. And fourthly, he waits on the Lord which means he gives room for the Lord to be the judge, particularly when it comes to those who mistreat us. He does not take his own revenge, but he lets God be God. As we think about that description of a truly meek person, do you remember who the Bible holds up as the most meek person that ever lived? Moses. Moses. We don't tend to think of Moses that way. I think of Moses as um, being humble, When God told him to go lead his people, he says, go get somebody else. I'm not qualified. That was not false humility. He really was humble. But eventually he went. And and as I said to the group Wednesday night, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power under control. That's what the word means. It's it's an animal that has been brought under control like a big stallion who is unrideable, but God bridles him and saddles him, and now he's useful. Moses became useful to God. He he walked this humble man right into the very throne room of Pharaoh, the most powerful man on planet Earth. I get the picture of him pointing his finger. He was 80 years old and said, let my people go. You know what Pharaoh said? Get lost. (laughs) And he did that 10 times. He wasn't weak. He was meek. He trusted the Lord and not himself. He committed his way to the Lord. He delighted in the Lord and he waited on the Lord through ten plagues. That's why Moses was the most meek man that that ever lived. But I, I think the greatest example of his meekness was not in his interaction with Pharaoh but with his own people. You know when they crossed that sea miraculously and got to the wilderness where they wandered for 40 years. It wasn't long before the people began to question Moses' leadership. They thought some of them ought to be the leader. They didn't like the menu. <laughs> they didn't like the water. They didn't like the hardships. And they didn't like Moses. And this spread even to his own family. His two siblings, his brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam, didn't like Moses' wife. And so they said, Moses, are you the only one God can talk to? We think we can lead this group better than you. You can't even pick a wife that we like. God was so upset that Miriam would speak that way to her brother, the man that he had chosen to lead the people, that he struck her with leprosy, which is about the most feared disease in the ancient world. And her brother Aaron, who did the same thing she did, was so concerned about his sister that he began to pray. You know what he prayed? He said, Lord, don't do that to me. And then we're told Moses prayed next. And you know what he prayed? Father, forgive her. Does that sound familiar? When Jesus was on the cross and his enemies were circling like crazed bulls wanting to gash him with their horns, he said, Father, forgive them. Why? For they know not what they do. He was meek, mannered. He wasn't weak. He had the power to call legions of angels, but it was power under the authority and control of his heavenly father. That's why Paul says, like Jesus, never pay back evil for evil. He entrusted himself to the judge who does right. Well, fifthly and finally, how are we to relate to people who hate us as Christians? We are to have an amicable attitude, which means a friendly disposition towards them. Verse 18, he says, Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, I have written in the margin of my own personal notes here, my translation of those four verses. Here it is. Don't be a jerk. (laughs) That's what he says to Christians. Don't be a jerk to those that hate you. In other words, don't use your Christianity as a shield or a license to ignore the laws of the land. Now, Jesus was not naive and and he doesn't want us to be. He knows and we know that the world is so fallen and men are so depraved that no matter how kindly you treat a person, some of them are going to insist on hating you. And I think there's two primary reasons why our culture hates Christians today. Number one, because our righteousness rebukes them and they don't like it. They think of themselves as good and upright and moral. But when someone who's been cleansed by the blood of Jesus works next to them in the cubicle, they see someone who is truly born again. They see their own deficiencies and they don't like having their own deficiencies revealed. And it angers them. That anger is often taken out on you. But the real root cause of the hostility in our culture towards Christians today is that they are enemies of Christ. They hate us because of our association with him. If you come close, i tell you a little secret. The more closely you walk with Jesus, the more you look like him and act like him and talk like him and smell like him, the more they're going to hate you. That's why I tell our staff quite often, if someone is determined to hate you, and they may very well be, no matter how well you treat them, make sure that they are hating the kindest and most loving person they know. Now, they still may hate you. They're very capable of doing that. But make them hate the kindest and most loving person they know. Take Tony Dungy again. I laughed out loud when I read the article about Tony Dungy. When his enemies described him as a hateful, radical, spouting hate Have you ever seen Tony Dungy? He makes Mr. Rogers look like Godzilla. (laughs) Tony Dungy, though I've never met him, comes across as the mildest, kindest person on all of television. And yet, because of his faith, he's attacked and maligned and lied about. And Jesus said, it'll happen. A servant's not greater than his master. So again, Paul gives that prohibition. Don't do this. Verse 19, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God for his written vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. God can handle it, so let him. He's a much better judge than any of us. But it's not enough just to go into neutral, to not strike back verbally or physically. He wants us to take positive action. He says in verse 20, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And he says when we do that, when we treat those well who treat us poorly, we're heaping coals of fire on their head. I don't know about you. When I was a kid, that verse bothered me. It's Heaping coals of fire on someone doesn't seem like something a Christian should be doing. So, so what does it mean? I, I looked at a lot of commentaries this week and no one knows. <laughs> there's a lot of opinions. I, I think there's, there's three primary things it means. I think it's a combination of all of them. One, we, we heap shame upon them. Peter seemed to indicate that the way we ought to live is in such a way as that if anyone made up a lie about us and our character, no one would believe it. And even a depraved sinner at some point has to admit they were wrong. And it brings shame upon a person when they treat you in a way that's obviously undeserved. It also brings conviction on them. Now, on one hand, only the Holy Spirit can convict someone of sin. In fact, Jesus says that's what he would do when he came, was convict the world of sin and judgment and righteousness. But the Holy Spirit uses means to bring about conviction. And I'm convinced that one of the things that the Holy Spirit can use to bring conviction in the life of an unbeliever is our righteous behavior. When they see consistency and veracity in how we live our life as compared to what we profess, they are attracted to it, not repelled from it. But I think also there's the concept of, of Keeping judgment on them. See, if we take our own judgment, judgment's over. But if we let God be the judge, he can do a lot better job of it than we can, right? So leave the judgment to God. Now, I suspect as I look out, most of you have been Christians a long time. You don't disagree fundamentally with what I've said. We were taught as children not to give back evil for evil, right? The question is how? Because everything within us fights it. Everything within us wants to strike back. Everything within us wants to use our tongue as a weapon. How do we not do that? Well, we have to pray. And we have to pray very specifically. First of all, we have to pray for God's help, recognizing we can't do it on our own. This is a supernatural transformation. It's not natural to pay back good for evil. And yet God is supernatural, isn't he? Pray for your enemies. Bless those that malign you. I suspect that the sentence that I use most often in biblical counseling is this. I find it almost impossible to stay angry and bitter and hate someone that I'm praying for by name. If there's someone in your life, someone at work or your neighbor who is hating you because of your faith. Commit to pray for them by name every day. Pray for their health. Most importantly, pray for their salvation. Ask God Or opportunities to identify with and minister to your enemies. Maybe something as simple as a flat tire. Helping them change it. Or they forgot their lunch one day and you share yours with them. Opportunities to give back good for evil. And pray for yourself. Because you know yourself like I know myself. We are capable of blowing this, aren't we? And we do. I'm almost certain on my way home, somebody's gonna cut me off in traffic today. (laughs) And God's gonna test me. If I practice what I preach, pray for meekness and look to Jesus as your example. Don't look to Moses. He's a good example, but he's not the best one in the Bible. Look to Jesus as your example of meekness and give thanks when you suffer and are persecuted. You know, the Bible says that we ought to give thanks when we are persecuted, that we were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. And look, let's be honest. Most of us haven't suffered much. We haven't suffered as unto blood yet. But I believe if things don't change, one day we will. And our children and grandchildren likely will And we need to prepare them. need to prepare ourselves for that day and to give thanks that we're counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Jesus. But don't forget this last verse, verse 21. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What is the greatest good that you can bestow upon your enemies? I believe it's to share Jesus with them. When they curse you, when they hate you, give them Jesus. When they malign you, when they undermine you, when they wish you ill, give them Jesus. When they hate you, when they speak all manner of evil against you, give them Jesus. Overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And so practical. Lord, I doubt there's anyone in this room that hasn't experienced Sometime in their lifetime. Someone who hates them because they love Jesus. And Father, if we haven't experienced that, we may not be walking very closely with him. Father, we want to walk so closely with Jesus that uh, that's what we're known for. Father, I'm reminded of those men in the Bible who were known because they'd been with Jesus. Father, I pray that would be the order of the day for every member of First Baptist Keller that wherever we go tomorrow to work, to school, on the playground, at the gym, people will take note that we've been with Jesus. Father, we know that uh, because of that, some people are gonna hate us. And so Father, we pray you'd help us that as much as is possible that we could live at peace with all men. We're not looking for a fight. But we know they hated Jesus. And Jesus says a servant's not better than his master. Some people are going to hate us. But Lord, I pray this. I pray for every member of First Baptist Keller as we go into a world that hates us, that if they hate us, they'll have to hate the kindest, most merciful, meekest person they know. Father, I pray you'd use us to turn this world upside down for Jesus. In his name we pray.